this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think when it comes to quality and safety, certainly I think we're going to see a lot more about sort of patient-centeredness or person-centeredness. And I use person-centeredness because it's both workforce and patients. When it comes to reported outcomes, when it comes to the thing that we talked about, which is incorporating staff and patient voice at scale into our, whether it's our initiatives, whether it's the vendors that we're picking. I mean, listen, if I was in health tech right now, I'd be focusing on making sure that staff and patients' voices are heard. Welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and I've got another incredible guest, Dr. Kamal Bajaj. She is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She's a reproductive geneticist. She serves as chief quality officer at NYC Health and Hospitals, Jacoby North Central Bronx, and she is the clinical director for NYC Health and Hospitals Simulation Center. How did I do? Oh my gosh, amazing, Mark. Well, lovely to meet you and glad to be here. The pleasure is ours. I've said it before, but the guests make the show. And we have been extremely fortunate to have incredible, incredible guests who have done amazing things. And you're no slouch. We are excited to have you here. In most episodes, we like to let our listeners know who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Komal means soft and gentle in Hindi, although most people who know me wouldn't sort of describe me like that on first blush. I grew up in Chicago and went to medical school at Northwestern and then completed a residency at OBGYN at Northwestern. And, you know, while I was an OBGYN resident, I was really sort of thinking about, well, what do I want to do after residency? And at first, I really strongly considered maternal fetal medicine until someone said, you know, you could do like that fetal stuff as a geneticist. And so the long and the short of it is I moved from Chicagoland to New York City and really haven't sort of looked back since. It's It's been sort of a remarkable ride. So I completed a fellowship in reproductive genetics at Einstein and then honestly joined Health and Hospitals, which is the municipal system for New York City, because I really felt like there was an opportunity to do better, to deliver high quality genetics care. And I have to say, I'm really proud that there's always work to be done, but we are certainly on par with the rest of our neighbors. And so shortly after I joined as an attending reproductive geneticist, the system was investing in simulation. So the use of robots, augmented reality, virtual reality, really not as an educational tool, but within sort of thinking about quality and safety issues. So pain points for the system. And when did all that begin? Like what, what time period are we talking about? So we're looking at around 2010. So early days of really strong investment in simulation. And I know Veronica Lerner was on the podcast not that long ago and sort of talked about kind of this exponential rise in simulation. And so as serendipity would have it, I was an early learner and they're like, you're sort of eccentric. You've won every teaching award. We're looking for an OBGYN. And the long and the short of it is up until about five years ago, I was spending the bulk of my professional time thinking about simulation and debriefing as quality and safety tools, not just within OBGYN, but really across the continuum. And we did some pretty remarkable work. I can talk a little bit about simulation and quality later, but really saw sort of the impact of the programming at scale. And then our system's leadership changed, and there was a real need to sort of strengthen the quality and safety infrastructure across health and hospitals. And I was very honored that they asked me to serve as the inaugural chief quality officer of then Jacobia, now Jacobia North Central Bronx. It's always fascinating to hear how people got from one thing to the next, right? You found 
an interest in genetics, went to New York for that, but then found this whole other field of simulation and then ultimately quality and safety from that. I'm not a big follow your passion guy. I think we all get tired when we're passionate, but I think you follow your curiosity. It's easiest way to keep yourself up at night reading things that are just interesting. Is that a bit of the story for you that just you were curious about it, like just wanted to learn more and in that way, was it was there another another way that, that that it came to be? Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, and and you know, and I couldn't agree with you more that I think it's a little mix of sort of what your what your passions are, what you're good at, and then sort of what has value, right? Sort of that hedgehog principle. For me, people will often ask me like genetics, simulation, and now quality, like what's up, right? And for me, it's the joy of taking something sort of esoteric, like whole exome sequencing, or how does a team manage a crisis and make it palatable and sticky for people, right? And unfortunately, there isn't much that is more complex than healthcare delivery itself. And so for me, there's that beautiful thread there that links sort of all of those, what might seem to be disparate sort of activities. So your role as a chief quality officer, what does that mean? What's your day-to-day? What's your week look like in general? Yeah, what's interesting is that if you polled 20 chief quality officers about what does your day look like, You could get like 20 very different answers, but there are sort of a few common features. And I say there are a lot of different answers because different tables of organization, different health entities, depending on size, depending on scale, depending on what services they provide, will sort of set up quality and safety a little bit uniquely. But there are some key features. The first is really looking at when you think about quality, sometimes it's you know it when you see it, but really there are sort of principles of quality and safety. And one of them is measurement. You can't fix what you don't know, right? And so as chief quality officer, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about are our quality assurance activities, as well as then, well, not just where are we, but then how do we improve it? And so performance improvement activities. Also spend a lot of time thinking about safety culture in that spirit of we've both been in ORs where there isn't that safety culture and it just feels different. And we know that the patient suffers when that happens. So safety is a lot about sort of raising the floor of care, making sure everyone gets the right medication, is identified correctly. So patient safety will often fall under the chief quality officer. And then, you know, unfortunately, things happen in the hospital. They happen everywhere. Sometimes they're not so great. Most of the time, they're great. And so risk management will often try to learn from all sorts of different events. And so again, that inputs into quality. And then Last but not least, one of the core activities is thinking about sort of regulation, accreditation standards and things of that nature. And so quality and safety is really sort of the it's an or, the organization is an organism and all of these factors input into the continuum of care across the organization. You touched on a lot of really important things. And I think there are bits and pieces of that that we all experience at times, but it is complex. And one of the things that we've talked about on the show that I've noticed a lot over my time as an attending that wasn't as well taught maybe along the way, not in any one place I went, but just in in healthcare training for most of us as physicians, is systems. And like you said, it's an organism. I call it an ecosystem. And I think it's a similar way of looking at this living, breathing, moving thing that has just got so many moving parts at the same time and trying to get a handle on that is a challenge simplifying complex things doesn't make them more simple. It just, you know, allows us to try to understand them better. But I want to touch on a few things you said, but starting with measurement, measure what matters, right? I think there's 
times in my career and in my practice along the way where you see people get really excited about improving quality metric A or B because, well, we can just get the numbers right here in Epic. It's very easy to find. Like that may not be the most important thing, but it's the low hanging fruit. And oftentimes I think people get frustrated when like there's really important things that we want to understand better, but they're hard to measure. So can you talk a little bit about measurement and measuring what you care about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you're right. It's very tempting to go after like what is readily available, as you said, from a EHR or a, a log or, or something of that nature. And oftentimes those things are readily available for a reason, right? Because it's an accreditation standard or it's because that measure has to be reported somewhere. And so at the very least, I would start there and I would double click on the fact that even if someone has a graph in front of them, it doesn't mean that they understand the trend or the numerator denominator or what does that data sort of say to them or more importantly, what does it mean to them? And so we spent a lot of time thinking about, to your point, what measures matter, right? What measures matter? And sometimes it matters because the community tells us it matters. Sometimes it matters because different regulators and different bodies tell us it matters. So one, why does it matter? And then also, if you think about each data point, right, behind each data point are hundreds and hundreds of patients often and the stories of those patients. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about what to measure and also, right, data literacy and data transparency. Because at the end of the day, you're in the OR, you do all of this work, you want to know your statistics, right? Just like when I'm on my iWatch and I'm looking at my Apple Watch and I'm like, oh my gosh, my heart rate was this, my steps were this today, right? You like to know your status. And so if you think about accessing data, not only because you need it to sort of do the right things, but as a way of sort of promoting psychological safety and transparency, all of a sudden you have a real impetus to think about measurement in a slightly different way. It's time intensive. So as a MIG surgeon, you know, 95, 98, maybe more of my surgeries are outpatient. And I work in a hospital that is high acuity, that is probably the highest acuity of patient care in the country. And they're focused on complex inpatient things. But for what I do, like I want to know my outpatient surgical data, right? And that's not something that is on the, what I care about or what I might want to know for my practice may not be the priority of the institution and trying to get that information when the number of people it takes to do the work who have the literacy to both accumulate and synthesize and present this data in a way that makes sense and then continue to do it on a regular basis is super labor intensive and finding the right people. So the commitment from the institutional level has to be massive, right? It does. And then I really just want to sort of emphasize your point of cost. There was a recent study that just came out literally this week that a single institution, Johns Hopkins, to sort of fulfill all of their reporting requirements. And we're not talking sort of do the work of looking at the data, making improvements just to meet the reporting requirements, cost that organization around five and a half million bucks. But it's not to say that you don't do that, right? As a result of doing that, then you there's different sort of returns, right? But I think to your point, there is the measures you must do. And oftentimes you, there's tremendous learnings in those measures that you must do. But then you may want to look at things for different reasons to ask sub questions or you're starting something new or it's a, oh, I've been doing this for one year. I want to look back and see. And that's where things like sampling can come in. That's where 
building in social determinants of health into your dashboards. So if you can begin to layer on on sort of existing data, some of the sort of things that people have curiosities about and want to ask. And so I think there's definitely something about that. What I'm really excited about are several things. One, patient-reported outcome measures. As a surgeon, there are certain things that you want to look at, but from a patient standpoint, what is most important to them? And certainly, you know, you can't get through anything these days without talking about AI. And I think one of the things that will be really, really helpful when it comes to your point, Mark, looking at the various things that you want to look at, synthesizing information, will be some of these sort of tools that are literally here or on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot with AI that is both exciting, a little frightening. Understanding that we look at, like I said earlier, we look at what's easy, what's in front of us, and AI is unbiased. It can just look at everything in ways that it, it isn't afraid to look at things that may not be related and find relationships. So I feel like that's a whole other like massive series of podcasts for AI and healthcare and also in quality because it is so complex. I think there's a huge opportunity there. But can I get back to your point about patient-reported outcomes? Because I think some of us have strong feelings about patient-reported outcomes. And so we see our reviews on health grades. We see a patient's reviews from our hospital. Is that what you mean when you say patient-reported outcomes? So those are the ones that you think of commonly. But before we do that, I just, I can't wait for Backtable. I can't wait for you to sort of do some podcasts on AI and sort of look behind the hood and sort of what goes into that. Come back on another episode. I feel like that's at least an hour. Easily. Well, especially as we talk about, as you said, kind of the concerns and risk and sort of how good are the algorithms and the bias that is associated in the creation of the algorithms themselves. But I think to your point about patient-reported measures, it comes in multiple different ways. The one that people will often think about are the care experience measures. But if you sort of think about when someone's doing a surgery, you have certain outcomes in mind for them, right? You want them to be on post-op day one doing this, post-op day four doing this. But from a patient perspective, they want to get to their kid's graduation or they want to get to the trip that they've always sort of dreamed about. And whether they're doing, you know, whether they're able to do that and, and sort of matches up with your post-op milestones, right? It's a different language almost. And so I think of patient-reported measures as beginning to really get to the heart of what matters to patients. And I will not say that it's not challenging. But as we think about the future, some of the most successful projects at scale that we have had are those where we have incorporated patient voice and co-designed with patients rather than for patients. And in this era of thinking about sort of our workforce and the wellness and happiness of our workforce, I mean, you can see it. You get people together in a room to talk about a problem, and it's like they're there to talk about a problem, but they're having a joyful experience doing it. Joint decision-making and doing it with the patient is, I think it's a shift for a lot of us. It's something that, like, look, man, I'm the one who went to med school, and I'm the one who went to residency and, you know, maybe did fellowship, and I've done the work, and I've done the grand rounds on these things, and I've done the research. I'm the expert. I've always tried real hard to listen to what patients are saying and what they want to do. I think it has to be about patient-reported outcomes. It has to incorporate that. It's not, come see me and I will fix your problems as the doctor. It is, come see me and together we can figure out how to get you to the place that you want to be. Here's the buffet of options and we'll work with you. I mean, I almost feel more like a consultant, like, you know, folks come to me like a wedding planner. Here's, you know, what's your budget? You know, what, do you, what are your expectations? Here's the reality of it. Together, we can try to come to like a, an outcome that 
can actually exist in reality, but also the one that you're happy with. Yeah. And, you know, I really appreciate that. And what you're sort of hitting on to me or what sort of came to my mind was something that I've been really excited about in quality and safety, which is diagnostic excellence. So what you just described is sort of the patient's wherever they're coming from, are interfacing long before they get to your operating room, Mark, right? They have met with different people. They have Googled things. They have had multiple lab studies. They might have even seen three or four providers before they sort of get to you. And the more and more that I am thinking about issues within OBGYN, specifically as it relates to infections or maternal morbidity and mortality, you know, I really think that we can learn from some of the other fields of medicine to think about at each point in the diagnostic journey, how can we impact care? I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to sort of think about and to what you're saying, right? Like, how can we enable patients so that they don't have to travel three hours to see you? And certainly there's been a lot that has been unlocked that may help us do that. What are examples of that? And, and what you mean when you say diagnostic excellence, like that, like that focus, because I'm like, I've never heard that term and I'm intrigued and I'm curious about it. Yeah. So it's actually something that's not very well described within OBGYN. I'll tell you the truth. So up until about, I would say, four years ago, until I started doing some work with the National Academies as part of their Diagnostic Excellence Program, I, as trained in OBGYN, genetics, chief quality officer, had not heard of it. But it's essentially, if you sort of think about diagnostic excellence, it's a timely and accurate explanation of someone's problem in a way that they understand which is a very simple definition. But if you sort of think about it, right, the moment someone has abdominal pain, they have abdominal discomfort, feeling of bloating, there's a lot of different things at play and symptoms that then bring someone to, well, that finally make them decide to come to an office. And so how can we shorten that time? And by the time they get sort of our studies are, oh, wait, you don't qualify for that kind of study at this institution. You have to go to that to get that thing and, and maybe see a radiologist while you're there. All of these sort of interfaces are part of a, someone's diagnostic journey before they get diagnosed with fibroids and before they talk to you and before they decide to have a surgery. And so I think mapping out people's diagnostic journeys, right? I'm thinking a lot about preeclampsia and eclampsia and maternal morbidity and mortality. There are often lots of faint signals long before that sometimes get missed, right? And so it's about, to me, unpacking this diagnostic journey. And if you want to learn about some really amazing exemplars, look at some programs like Geisinger and the VA and what they've done with cancer diagnosis. From symptoms to imaging to getting out reports in a timely fashion to getting them treated in a timely fashion. We can learn a lot from some of our colleagues who are doing this work. And so the National Academy is actually having a workshop, a series of workshops on this topic and maternal mortality is one of them. I have a theory about why we struggle with diagnostic excellence. And I think about this, I think, again, part of my experience here in Kentucky has certainly shaped that. But much of healthcare systems design is physician-centered. I'm not in clinic on this day. My ultrasounds aren't read on these days because I'm not reading ultrasounds on that day. I only exist in this particular place. And so programs we've built, like our fiber program, we have IR come to my office. We have body MR that's read same day so they can come in town, get the MRI, see me, see IR the same day. Like, how do we make little adjustments to make that diagnostic and management journey smooth? And the funny thing is, it's oftentimes very physician-centered in the back end, decreasing a lot of this 
just junk in the system. And so systems design, I think historically is, listen, I'm the doc, I know what works. That's my impression. I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on how it was designed and also the direction that we need to go in terms of systems design for quality and safety? So it's, it's really poignant. There's this saying in quality and safety, which is said over and over again, but it's always holds true that a system is perfectly designed to achieve the results that it achieves. And so to your point, oftentimes when things are set up a certain way, it's for a reason. It may not be the best reason or the reason that matters in this moment, but when it was designed five, seven, 10 years ago, there was a reason. And I don't, as a, as a quality and safety leader, I will be the first to admit that change is hard. If you double down on the humans, humans are the most amazing things, right? And the most valuable part of our health system by sort of engaging people's intrinsic motivation, that co-design piece that we sort of talked about, being willing to try, try one body MRI. You know, the, the beautiful program that you mentioned didn't happen overnight. You had to sort of get different people in the box and have their willingness to try. I'm the first to say it's okay to fail. You just have to try. And that's what the program was born out of. It was, I got an idea. I got a nurse who was like, that sounds fun. And I had other docs who were willing to get involved. And, and on the flip side, I've had presentations to the heads of my hospital. Everybody was thrilled about it. Multiple other specialties that had buy-in and one person pumped the brakes on it and the whole thing stopped. That was it. Months of my life to build a, a program one person didn't like it and that was it. And it's amazing how much people are the machine, right? We have to value the people. We have to understand what they can bring, both good and bad. The success of anything I've done, any of us do, is the people, is the people in the system. And go in every day and just be grateful that the same people are there. Like every time I see my team, I'm just like, thank you for being here today. Without a doubt. What a great feeling, right? That team. And I can imagine like they're happy to see you as well. One of the things as health and hospitals is going through quality and safety transformation to this point, it's really four sort of steps of transformation. The first is our culture. Again, going back to if we don't have a culture where people want to see each other or where they feel like they can tell us when something's wrong, we're never going to go very far. The second is, to your point about humans and doubling down on humans, is increasing capacity. At the end of the day, Mark, if I polled you about the five things that should be changed about your system. You would list them. You could list them, right? And so how can we equip those amazing humans to not just do the work, but sort of help improve the work? The third is ensuring that we're sort of aligning our activities. Like you said, there were some people who weren't in your camp, but there were some people that were and sort of joining forces to attack complex problems. And then the fourth, interesting that we started off with data, but in fact, for our transformation, it's fourth truly making data-driven decisions. Because I could plunk the most elegant chart in front of you, but without sort of working on culture and making sure that we're speaking the same performance improvement language, we won't go very far. That's what our old head hospitalist always used to always say is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Can I ask you a question about culture though? And we can talk more or less about this if you want, but as much as allies and partners and success, those who share our visions are essential in any project and any plan. Some people are just going to make it harder. There's those that row in the boat the other direction or are dropping anchors for whatever reason, because they lack the understanding. They, their understanding is different and they want to go in a different direction. How do you address or deal with people 
when they are not helping solve problems? Yeah, well, first, I liberate myself by there are not very many circumstances where you need 100% unanimous support, right? If you sort of think about it in healthcare, you need the majority, but there are very few circumstances where you need 100%. And so I think about the Rogers adoption curve and I think about I need to get those people together who are at the very least willing to give it a try. I don't need those people who are willing to stand in three days to get an iPhone before it comes out. I don't need those people who like will pre-order it because they want like the gold one. I need the ones who are willing to like wait a day or two, see how the iPhone reviews are and then buy it. Right. I need those three groups of people and that there's a lot of data behind this on sort of the exact percentage, but it's not all of them. There are people who are going to need more time to come along. And so I think that by going back to those principles of agency building and really coming down to people's intrinsic motivation, what's in it for them, the stories of patients, the people behind those dots on a graph, being open to, you know, I may have wanted to do things a certain way, but the group really wants to try it this way. I'm willing to give it a try, right? That element of co-design. And then having clear checkpoints on, we're going to try this once and then we're going to see if it worked or what about it worked and then hardwire what did work. It's very liberating when you know you don't have to get 100% unanimous agreement and you're willing to try something knowing that it might not be a home run. You make it sound easy. Change management is, in my experience, one of the hardest things in the world, especially when you are coming into a system that has different priorities. And I think that's something that I'm curious of your opinion on. When I've read about change management or about implementing new things into the system, it's top down. If you're not at the top and you want to change things, what was the, it was like one of those HBR podcasts, the guy said, you know, be, be prepared to die on the mountain because you're going to be up against people who don't want what you want. Leading up can be helpful, but ultimately you've got to, and you mentioned the change in leadership where you were, but how much does that matter in what, in doing what you're doing? I mean, is it, is it possible to do that without it or is that essential? Well, I will totally 100% agree with you. I mean, change is hard. That's why we're in the predicament. That's why we are where we are. Like, that's why the systems are perfectly designed to achieve the results that they achieve, without a doubt. But at the end of the day, right, if you sort of think about, we do a lot of amazing things, right? We do a lot of amazing things every day. And so if you're running against some major backlash at scale, why not do something like a success cause analysis? Look at something that's working really, really well that everyone's really proud of and unpack why did that work? And oftentimes you'll find some of the same ingredients you need. Huh, it's because so-and-so was at the table. It's because we were willing to try it this way. And so when you're feeling resistance, and again, I like fully understand that resistance. I run up against it every day. I think my point here is that when you are mission-driven, when you know you have an idea that's patient-centered, it's about laying the groundwork so that, as you said, like the people who have the ability to move the levers, invest in a serious way, will hear you. And so don't stop with your good idea. Don't stop trying, but think about the ways that you can get other people behind you. No, I love that. And I think that's probably pretty consistent with my experience. I mean, and you say mission-driven. I think decide what's important to you. And for many of us, it's patient care. It is education. And for some of us, it's research, but putting those things first, everything else that you want to argue with me about or want to want to challenge, it's easy because you can't really argue about what's in the patient's message. We've got great data on this is the right way to do these things. Most of the time, sometimes we don't. 
But when we've got good evidence and we have a good direction, if we're all focused on patient care, if we're all focused on those outcomes in education, then how we do it, usually we can, you know, sit at a table and figure out one direction that we all agree on. But but getting people to do the right thing or what you believe is the right thing often comes from just doing it yourself and showing people how well it works. I think we've had a lot of buy-in from the programs we've had by failing quietly, succeeding loudly. You try stuff like you said, if it doesn't work, okay. Sometimes you don't get the buy-in you want, but when you succeed, share it. Share with everybody so they can take it and they can use it and we can all get better. It's not about greatness. It's about getting better. I hope that I'm good before I'm done with this job at some point, right? That's just get better every day. Absolutely. You know, all of us who are sort of working in women's health, we're all looking for solutions to some common problems, right? So we're all sort of in this together in a way. So we've talked a lot about, I think, the day-to-day, the interpersonal stuff and more broad, bigger things. But as a chief quality officer, you have to make some big decisions, right? You have to take all of these problems. Like you said, you ask 100 physicians, they'll very quickly give you their top five problems to solve. How do you, as an officer at, especially like the one you're at, a huge health system, how do you decide which of these we're going to work on, which of these things we're going to work on later, which of these things we're maybe going to pass on for now? How do you do that in a high-level C-suite type way in ways that those of us who are not in that space can understand? I'll start by saying that the things that we will always prioritize are the things that sort of align with our mission. And then, listen, at the end of the day, healthcare in general, dollars matter, right? And I don't want to take that away at all. You know, all of us are sort of operating in a universe where that matters. And so I think first, I'll answer your question by talking a little bit about sort of the overlap of quality and safety and finance, and then sort of lead into maybe how we sort of think about priorities. Quality, as we sort of said, there's people might slightly define it in slightly different ways, but it is measured internally as well as through external agencies like the Centers for Medicare or Medicaid. And so poor quality can impact in several different ways. And conversely, awesome quality can impact favorably in a lot of different ways. You know, the first is, is that failures in quality can accrue internal expenses. I'm thinking about, you know, things like length of stay or delays in diagnosis, as well as financial penalties through external agencies. And then, of course, can't talk about OBGYN without talking about litigation. But let's go to those external sort of agencies for a second. There's a whole host of programs that organizations will participate in. And so one of these programs, for example, is a hospital readmission reduction program. Its name says it all, and it's tagged to millions of dollars where, you know, programs evaluate the hospital's performance on these measures and adjust payments accordingly. And so this one program is around 0.6% of Medicare revenue for an organization. And that's one program, right? So if you sort of think about it, if you stack all of these up for organizations that are already running just slightly under budget, you hope, point this, point that, point that, all of a sudden it matters. The other thing I'll say is that patients vote with their feet. We sort of talked about patient-reported outcomes earlier, right? CMS STAR is a public reported rating, as well as LeapFrog grade is a publicly reported rating. These things are easily accessible, not let alone the Yelps, the Googles, the all of that, right? Health systems will often use positive ratings in press releases, but clearly lower ratings will impact how consumers will view an organization. 
all of these sort of leapfrog and CMS, there's many, many metrics that go into these ratings. Quality can save healthcare money through process changes that result in operational efficiencies, like the length of stay thing I mentioned, decreasing adverse events, and increased payment through a whole host of value-based purchasing programs, which, as you know, just sort of reward facilities for for meeting evidence-based healthcare standards. And the last I think I will mention is that safety ratings can also impact payer contracts, which no matter where you are, you're in a more rural environment, I'm in a more urban environment, insurers will gauge performance through a whole host of data sets, and that can certainly impact your contracts. And so there's no doubt from a very serious budgetary and reputational perspective, quality and safety matters. So to your question about how do we prioritize, obviously the CMSR and LeapFrog, there's a whole host of measures that input into those programs, right? And there's a few other sort of public ratings, but those are the major ones. So first and foremost, we're sort of looking at those metrics and where do we stand and and where do we sort of need to improve performance? So I think that's sort of one level of prioritization. The next is we will often use our community-based partners and our community health needs assessment. Every organization that we're at has to do a community health needs assessment at least once every three years. So if you haven't read yours, find it. It's a really amazing, important source of information as to what are the needs of your local community and what can you do to sort of help support their needs. And then a lot of it comes from our staff pain points, right? If you work on culture, you work on improving capacity, people tell you where the pebbles in their shoe are, you got to honor that by working towards fixing them. And what you'll find is oftentimes they align with the very things that they're hearing from their patients, which often usually impact what CMS and other programs look after. So they're very intertwined. But I think those are sort of three different areas that help prioritize. What are we doing today? What can we not do today, but we would like to do, say, six months a year from now? Again, you make it sound easy, but I know it's not. Uh, It's not. I'm not saying it is, Mark. No, just in the way you're able to communicate it. It's very eloquent and very, it makes sense. And I appreciate that. I think you touched on a number of important points, but one of them is that healthcare is a business. And one of the things that I learned later than maybe I would have is how the system works. I feel like, again, that's an area where if physicians and those of us who practice in healthcare understood more about the system, it would make a heck of a lot more sense to us when these changes are made, how all these things work. And I've said this, every time someone says the healthcare system is broken, I I say what you just said, which is the system is not broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do and it was designed to make money. I mean, it's, you know, yes, people hopefully get the care they need and all those things, but ultimately if the system doesn't make money, it doesn't work. And I don't say that with judgment. I say that as sort of matter of fact in that understanding a system allows you to work within a system to maximize the outcomes or to find ways to change and improve the system. And I think that's something that folks like you that have been able to become experts of the system in many ways allow you to use those powers for good instead of evil. Again, I joke, again, I don't think money is evil or that, you know, the system itself is evil, evil, it just is. But that's another opportunity, I think, for those of us out there that are looking to make change, that are looking to make an impact, not just in our clinics, but also in our health systems or nationally is getting involved with our national organizations, getting involved in our hospital committees, 
to learn about how these systems work so then you can help be a part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. And I think that's something that, you know, many of us get frustrated if disenfranchised because, man, I've been doing this forever and no one listens to me. Well, then go go do something about it. Go get involved. And my guess is, you know, much of what you have been able to do with your career is because, number one, you work hard and you're good at what you do. But my guess is you also got opportunities but took advantage of them when you were there, right? Totally. And I get annoyed. People get annoyed with things. And my thought was, well, I actually can do something about it. I actually have opinions on how it could be different. So let me try to dabble and figure it out. Yeah, stuff bothers me. Yeah, that's right. Stuff bothers me. And I have to say, I I have tremendous pride being an OBGYN and being a healthcare quality leader. I sit on the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality's National Advisory Council, which is an appointment by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. I take great pride in being able to sort of vocalize some of the challenges and concerns that I'm familiar with through my sort of various hats, including being an OBGYN. And I would actually say that OBGYNs, I mean, by virtue and other, I would say, practitioners within women's health are actually really well poised to serve and change things. And the reason being is, think about it, we pivot from OR to labor and delivery to clinic to you know, age 18 to age 80, right? At the end of the day, right? It's a versatile field and we pivot in many different ways. And it's that kind of creativity. I mean, think about it. You probably did 10 things today that were like creative to solve problems. And so we have a voice. We need to have a stronger voice. And certainly we can do a lot of good. I think that's true. I, I've always said, I think being an OBGYN chair is one of the tougher jobs because I think, you know, if you're a chair of surgery, yes, there are different types of surgeons, but ultimately they're all surgeons. And the same is true with medicine. Yeah, you've got proceduralists within an, a department of internal medicine. But when you talk about G1 oncology and MFM and ultrasound, you're doing diagnostic, you're doing cancer, you're doing perinatal and neonatal, you're doing benign surgery, all at the same time with a huge ambulatory component too. And so, yeah, I've always felt like being the chair of an OBGYN department is you, you got to know a bunch of different stuff. But to go back to medicine as a business, I think to sort of round out my thought on understanding it, I guess my big question to you is, it seems to me that quality and safety is actually financially smart. Like caring about people is important. And yes, focus on that. But even if you don't, like doesn't doing a good job ultimately cost less? And isn't that a way to do good and also like, you know, is that not the ultimate way to sell something? Is there a way to do it where the, we're all winners? And I feel like the answer is yes. You're absolutely right. And and certainly more and more as payment is tied to doing the right thing in the right way with the right outcomes, certainly investing in quality and safety or sort of working within quality and safety does promote the financial health of the organization. And one thing that I want to bring up, Mark, is that as organizations are talking about advancing health equity as part of the definition of sort of high quality care, you can ingrain equity into quality and safety structures. For example, when it comes to measurement, stratify by an equity lens so that when you're doing improvement work, you make sure all different groups are experiencing those gains. When you're talking about an event, and it doesn't have to be an unfavorable outcome, but an event, how did structural bias or injustice contribute to this event? All of a sudden, there's, you know, you can use this existing foundational processes to advance equity, which by definition is part of high quality care. 
So it's financially the right thing to do. It's morally the right thing to do. And certainly there's a science behind it, which is accessible in a lot of different ways, right? Different organizations will have training programs. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement has an open school that's an online program. There's a lot of different ways that people and OBGYNs and other professionals can access this type of sort of information and learning. Yeah, I mean, understand where the money comes from, right? Whether it's CMS and I'm grateful to have a federal government that puts money behind things that matter. I think the role of government, right? To say, I know this is a way to make money, but this is what's important to people, to our citizens. And there's money behind quality, right? And I think that for insurance companies, for profit and nonprofit insurance companies, they're looking for efficiency and leanness. And so, you know, it's cheap doing good surgery, not having them come back and come to the ER two or three times and reoperate, right? That's right. It's doing the cancer screening so that you avoid the cancer or treat it early as opposed to late stage. So many ways that this manifests, right? Right. And so it's, again, not evil, not, you know, all insurance companies are not evil. All government is not the problem. But there's so many good things and opportunities within that. And the more you can understand the system and the systems and, the, and how they interplay, the more you can use that to do good work. And I think, yeah, I mean, look, justice is one of those things that keeps me up at night. And if, when it's not even necessarily like the big stuff, sometimes it's just like this just seemed unjust. And that's what makes me go crazy at times at work. Just this should have been done the right way. And the frustration, I think, is cured for me by getting involved and just making sure that next time that just thing happens. I think there are so many ways that we can impact, but I think you don't have to do them all. Though it seems overwhelming, just pick something. Just start with one thing. And unfortunately for you, it sounds like you've not done that. You've picked a bunch of things. I mean, you wear a lot of hats. You seem very busy. I don't know if you have any hobbies or anything, but it seems like all the hats that you wear, you seem like you do a ton. Well, I find the intersections, which again, sort of brings joy and also helps me do a host of different things. I think we all are busy and we all sort of do a, a lot of different things. My twins, we have nine-year-old twins. They bring me a lot of joy. And we have 14-year-old twins. Oh my goodness. Twin parents rock. It's a special little club. And then if you have a singleton, we're the only ones who call our one kid, you know, our singleton singletons because other people just call them kids. That's but, right. Oh, oh, there's a difference. There's a big difference. There seem to be a lot of twins in OBGYN. Yeah, too, for sure. Within our world. Okay, so you were excited about this. I'm excited about this. But I want to talk about the future of quality and safety. I want to talk about what it looks like. And I think certainly AI is going to be a part of that. What are the next big things for us to look out for for quality and safety at a health systems level? Yeah, so, you know, I think when it comes to quality and safety, certainly I think we're going to see a lot more about sort of patient-centeredness or person-centeredness. And I use person-centeredness because it's both workforce and patients. When it comes to reported outcomes, when it comes to the thing that we talked about, which is incorporating staff and patient voice at scale into our, whether it's our initiatives, whether it's the vendors that we're picking. I mean, listen, if I was in health tech right now, I'd be focusing on making sure that staff and patients' voices are heard. I think the other thing in the pipeline is, well, a couple things. One is a re-emphasis on patient safety. I think, to your point, measurement, we've done a lot of measurement, but getting back to the basics, culture, the things that bring people joy, 
strong leadership presence. All of those things are going to be really important. And in fact, if you sort of look at a few sort of articles recently talking about re-upping the national patient safety movement, there's a lot of energy and engagement around that. And then one of the emerging areas that honestly my twins have really sort of gotten us thinking about a lot and certainly now has moved into the sort of my day job is thinking about the sustainability or the environmental impact of healthcare delivery. 9% of the United States greenhouse gas emissions are related to healthcare delivery. And certainly I think we have to do better. Yeah, Kelly Wright was on to talk about that. And that was something that I think all the residents have listened to the show now and they're like, get that red trash can out of here. That's right. It's amazing just having the trash can in the room. Makes you do things. That's right. It makes you do things. But, you know, I think quality and safety leaders who can sort of change processes and hearts and minds at scale when it comes to decision making about products and things of that nature. To your point, systematically removing the things to make it easier for humans to do the right thing. I think quality and safety leaders are perfectly poised to impact healthcare sustainability. And so I think those, to me, the things that are sort of exciting about quality and safety. And what I would like to say is that no matter where you are, anyone who's listening, you have an opportunity to improve something around you. And so I'd encourage you to ask the questions like, well, well, how is quality and safety done here, right? Wherever here is for you. Every organization needs to have a plan where they talk about, to your point, Mark, the goals for the year. If you don't know them, find out where they are. Find out what they are. There's a lot of measurement that happens. That's not going away. But certainly some of our tech tools will help with that. But know what is being measured, because if you don't know what's out there and what those dashboards are, it's hard to know what needles people are sort of looking at. And then I will say, when you see that there's a problem and you have a solution, do the hard work of figuring out why that problem exists. And oftentimes it will help shed light on the kind of solution that's necessary. We do that all the time. When we see a drip coming from our ceiling, we don't just rip the ceiling, right? We try to figure out where is it coming from and then fix that pipe where the leak is happening. So similarly, no matter where you sit in sort of the continuum of women's health or what type of organization you're, you're at, you have the ability to make change in your environment. And I'm really excited and encouraged by the voices. We're starting to hear more voices. Some have a lot of concerns. Others. Not so much, but whatever it is, you know, I'm excited that we're hearing those voices. No, I love that. You touched on, I think, a bunch of stuff, but to me, it all comes down to leadership, both the leadership at the top that allows you to be empowered to make change from a systems level. But also, I talk a lot about both in my administrative roles, but also my clinical roles, lead from where you are. Residents, your leaders, students, your leaders, nurses, staff, your leaders. When you find a problem, I'm going to empower you to go figure out what you think the problem is, and then we can talk about it. We'll sit down together, and we'll come up with a solution, and I'm in. I trust you to do it. And I think the look on some people's faces when they're not, like, they want the answer. And I'm like, I don't know the answer. That's right. Let's un unpeel this onion. <laughs> You're the one who's got the itch, so you go scratch it, right? You're the one who's bothered by this thing enough to come talk to me about it. No one is better suited than you to go figure out what's going on. And ultimately, that's what gets people excited to go do their work. I mean, again, I've said this a thousand times, but all any of us want to do is leave at the end of the day and go, I did okay today. Not more complicated than that. That's right. And if you solved a problem, if it's something and the best programs we have, the best teams we have are because people on those teams are empowered to lead from where they are. They don't feel like they have to ask permission to do good things. 
I trust the people to do the right thing, to do good work. No one's going to be perfect. And you go back, you talked about psychological safety, first names and ORs and all those things that we do to make sure everybody feels like they are empowered to get this patient from point A to point B. I'm not perfect. And the more of us that are doing this job together with the same goals, the less chance there is that there's going to be a bad outcome. That's all we can do. And I think when you take off a lot of that pride, that you know, hierarchical situation, everyone knows I'm the surgeon. Everyone knows in the OR, like if something happens, they're going to look to me for an answer. But ultimately, I need to make sure the student feels like they can speak up and say, hey, so I noticed this is, is beeping or doing something wrong. And you go, ah, extra pair of eyes, ears for me. Thank you. Instead of like, leave me alone, I'm busy. And so I think that's something that at every part of this complex ecosystem, the more people we can have working and paddling in that same direction and empowering them to pick up a paddle and do something makes them want to paddle harder. And I think that is true, again, in the clinics and hours, but also from a quality standpoint. Empower people when they're frustrated. Give them a shovel. Start digging. Let's do this. I hear you. I'm with you. Join me. And all of a sudden, it becomes infectious. And so how we lead from where we are, I think, is, a whole, is, is such an important part of healthcare. Learning how to lead is something that needs to be incorporated, I think, in, in medical education and all healthcare education, again, not just docs, but in systems. So we all can improve the systems wherever we are. That's right. You heard it here. Backtable OBGYN starting a movement. Yep. Let's do it. Well, I know you're busy. I'm grateful that you have given us your time, your expertise, and shared that with me and also the listeners here at Backtable. So thank you so much. Anything else you wanted to chat about before we let you go or anything else you wanted to plug while you're here? No, I really appreciate the opportunity, Mark. Thank you. Well, that was such a pleasure. And hopefully we can have you back to talk about AI or something else down the road. And thank you again for joining us here on Backtable OBGYN. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinsky. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.